You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Deputy Editor of ARIO, Daniel Sharp, who will be my co-host. And our guest is Matt Johnson. Matt is a writer, and he is the author of the forthcoming book, How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment, which is coming out later this year. And uh, Matt has also been a previous guest on this podcast, together with Daniel and Ben Burgess, um, when we, in a special edition of the podcast we did on the on the uh, Hitchens' death anniversary, which, what anniversary was it, Matt? Do you remember how many years it had been? Um, yeah, I think it was the 10th. The 10th, the 10th anniversary of Hitchens' death. Um, he is sorely missed. But today we've invited Matt on to talk about the ongoing situation in Ukraine. And I'd like to begin by just reading a short paragraph from um, the beginning of a feature article that Matt wrote for us at ARIO called Putin's Pointless War. That was published back in February. So one of the questions will be how how much, what has changed and how much and how that has might have affected Matt's view of the situation. But uh, meanwhile, let's begin here, which is the, the origins and causes of this war. I quote, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been in the making for a long time. It's a reverberation from the collapse of the Soviet Union three decades ago and the fall of the Russian Empire three quarters of a century before that. It's also the product of Vladimir Putin's paranoid, embittered and power-addled mind, a mind steeped in a conspiratorial pseudo-history of Russia's role in the world and of endless imagined foreign plots to undermine that role. This is not NATO's war. It's not Ukraine's war. It's Putin's war. And he's the one responsible for all the horrors that will follow. In the months leading up to the invasion, many journalists and academics argue that it was caused by NATO expansion. That any great power would behave just like Russia if a hostile or rather defensive military alliance were marching toward its doorstep. People who say such things always ignore several pertinent facts. First, Ukraine was many years away from joining NATO, if its accession was going to happen at all. Second, the NATO countries on Russia's doorstep are tiny Baltic republics with a combined population of about five and a half million people. And third, when Putin invaded and annexed Crimea in 2014, it was not because he thought Ukraine posed a military threat, but because, 
after the Euromaidan protests, uh, after the Euromaidan protests there had led to the ouster of Ukraine's Moscow-backed kleptocratic leader, Viktor Yanukovych. He was terrified that Ukraine was becoming a modern Western democracy. I'm going to apologize briefly in advance for butchering any and all Russian and Ukrainian names cited in this podcast. I think it should also be Vladimir Putin, but I'm used to saying Vladimir, and I'm sure I will continue to say that. So um, if you're a Russian or Ukrainian speaker listening to this, my apologies. Bear with us. Um, okay, so let's let's begin there. What um, um, You've talked about Putin's... Um, kleptocratic and imperialist um, ambitions, Matt. Um, can you trace those back historically for us and um, show how that led to this inv- to the invasion? Um, yeah. So Russia at the end of the Cold War was, let me think of a, a better way to put this, actually. One of the themes of the article that you were just reading from is the um, the fact that Putin isn't necessarily uh, trying to restore some semblance of transnational authority um, as it existed in the Soviet era. Um, he's he's actually a Russian imperialist who who really looks to the the Russian Empire earlier in the 20th century as as his sort of model um, Russian uh, transnational society. So. It's it's kind of remarkable that you, he's consistently um, he's consistently cited uh, for saying that you know the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, but he he actually has has made it uh, clear in, in his speeches and his articles over the past several years that he he views the Soviet Union as this sort of hodgepodge that didn't actually function all that well as a, a transnational uh, entity. So he's just a he's just a classic Russian imperialist in many ways. I mean, it's it's more like uh, the restoration of something resembling czarism that that he is pursuing. It's it's much more based upon cultural and historical and linguistic ties than um ideal the, the ideological um fabric of the Soviet Union. So that's I, I'd say that's the most important thing to remember when you're considering his ideological and, and historical motivations. What were the immediate triggers of this war? Um, can you trace from 2014, maybe up until the beginning of the Ukraine invasion, um, what you think was uh, going on in uh, Putin's geopolitics? Um, and maybe also uh, talk a bit about how the war has been going since then. Uh, yeah, so Putin is just a revanchist and imperialist leader. Um, in 2013, uh, there was something called the EU, um, or I think it's the, the Ukraine-EU Association Agreement, um, which a lot of Ukrainians were in favor of because it would establish stronger diplomatic, uh, political, and economic ties with Europe. And when Viktor Yanukovych um, went back on it, and decided to take a multi-billion-dollar bribe from Russia instead of um, honoring the the wishes of the Ukrainian people to you know become more closely integrated with Europe. 
um, Ukrainians were outraged and they took to the streets to protest. Um, an anti-protest bill was passed in, I think, December of 2013, but that didn't deter people. And um, then Ukrainians ended up filling, you know, Maidan Square and, and other parts of Kyiv, um, protesting this this decision to, to you know, keep Ukraine within Russia's sphere of influence or, or Russia's orbit. Um, and those protests turned violent and uh, around 100 people were killed. And this is something now referred to as the, the revolution of dignity in, in Ukraine. And um, this horrified Putin because um, his president, I mean, his uh, his sort of puppet in the country was ousted by you know genuine democratic uprising. And he the last thing he wants in the world is, is for a successful um, Slavic uh, democracy to put the lie to his claim that the Slavic peoples have to be ruled by strong men like him, that they, they can't become part of the international system of, of commerce and political organization that has, has, you know, provided such remarkable benefits to Western Europe and, and the United States and so many people around the world. So that's, that was the trigger for the invasion and annexation of Crimea in 2014. And that, that should have been um, the wake up call that, that Putin's revanchism will just be relentless. I mean, he, he, he will not allow uh, his neighbors or would not allow his neighbors to uh, move toward the West, no matter how much democratic sentiment was behind that decision to move toward the West. Um, so that, and I just don't think that the Western world um, appreciated what they were dealing with when he invaded and annexed Crimea. I mean, that, that, that was, it was inconceivable to people in the Obama administration. I think at, at one point, John Kerry said, you know, this is this is just 19th century behavior. This just isn't how countries act in, in the 21st century. Um, and and it, Putin is a 19th century ruler in many ways. And that that's that is the starting point for understanding his his motivations. I mean, he's, he's more interested in territorial aggrandizement than in making Russia a, a modern democratic and, you know, economically integrated state. I do wonder if you can push it back even further maybe maybe even a 10th century um ruler um because i think that's part of what a lot of people miss about this whole conflict uh so much of it is is uh framed in the sort of realist rational lens you know of states as self-interested rational actors uh and that's essentially what the the nato expansion uh argument is it's uh you know this is a uh, a terrible but uh, ultimately a sort of rational response to provocation um but i think the element that's been missed is not just the nationalistic aspect of the whole ideology but going back even further uh, in 988 when the another vladimir um a pagan uh ruler uh had a mass conversion uh of his people to christianity uh in kiev uh, and that, and, and so um, Ukraine has became the sort of founding site of of Russian Orthodox Christianity, um, and that rupture. Uh, there was a rupture uh, recently when the Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, seceded from the authority of the of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, and arguably that is also part of part of the motivation for this invasion. I would say it's territorial and nationalistic, but there's also a 
sort of religious imperialist aspect to it as well. Uh, so I don't know if you if you've uh, thought about that much. Uh, if you want to give your give your give your views on that. Yeah, I mean, did you um, did you happen to read that seven thousand word monstrosity that uh, the Kremlin published? last summer i believe it was on the historical unity of of uh russian speaking peoples you know this is this is sort of putin's manifesto and it's it's his uh attempt at writing an accurate history of russia and ukraine the relationship between the two and um is yeah, this you, the op-ed in the new york times or are you oh talking no about that was that was earlier that was in 2013 um yeah that's called a plea for caution from russia that was back when vladimir putin could get space in the new york times to uh, urge restraint upon western governments uh, sort of an interesting period in history but anyway yeah he's it's just it's very i think it's very difficult for people to understand that putin actually has these genuine historical grievances what he views as legitimate grievances and it's difficult for them to accept the fact that he is just an imperialist who's interested in, in re-establishing um, as much Russian power and influence um, in Eastern Europe as he possibly can. I mean, you constantly hear these um, these strange obscurantist arguments about how Putin really does have he really does have these genuine um, security interests that need to be respected. And I, I understand why we would want to try to empathize with uh, you know any any leader. Um, who wields such power. I mean, you, you want to be able to get into his head and, and figure out what he regards as a threat and, and how you can mitigate um, those threats. You know, but it, it's just, he's he's more motivated by this this um, sort of Russian chauvinism and, and this Russian expansionism that has always informed uh, his, his foreign policy. I mean, it, it informed it when he invaded Georgia, it informed it when he invaded Crimea, and then it drove the ultimate invasion of all of Ukraine. And so it's just, it, I can understand arguments against NATO expansion, and I can understand why people worry about antagonizing Putin. But it, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to lend credence to those arguments now, because this is the one move that he could have made that would dramatically increase NATO membership. I mean, you now have uh, Finland and, and Sweden and, and Norway considering joining the alliance and it's, or Finland and Sweden considering joining the alliance. And it's just it's just been a catastrophe for his geopolitical project. So it's, you know, he was willing to risk that to invade Ukraine. It's not the other way around. This isn't the way that you prevent NATO from from um, rearming and, and reinforcing its eastern front. You know, it's that gets it backwards. So I wonder if, um, well, yeah, I mean, the whole ideological project is one of of you know Russian Russian speaking unity, the great Russian imperium, um, and uh, not not to bang on too much about the Orthodox Church, but uh, you know. This, the unity of Orthodox Christianity is also part of that, which is part of the reason why um, Ukraine is so special to his project, because that's where it originated. Um, but I wonder, so, so why exactly then, I mean, you kind of discussed it a little bit, but explicitly then, why why is the NATO expansion argument wrong? Uh, you know, why, why, why is that a flawed way to look at this? Uh, you know, surely... Surely, you know, there was a, a real uh, risk of this uh, 
quasi-imperialist uh, hegemonic alliance going up to the borders of Russia and no 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 power no nation wants that uh and uh, you know on its very frontiers you know if uh, if Mexico joined an alliance with with uh, with uh, China uh, you know the US wouldn't uh surely wouldn't just uh, let that slide yeah i'm i'm playing devil's advocate here by the way but uh, i know. i want to i want to try and put all of these uh these arguments to you so this is a pretty common refrain that you hear um, from from realists and from um, the left and the sort of left wing critics of, of NATO is the United States would never accept uh, a hostile military alliance or a defensive military alliance establishing itself on on our borders. You know, I mean, if, if this if uh, Mexico ended up joining some some kind of like modern modern version of the Warsaw Pact, then Washington would, would never allow it. Um, I, I understand that argument, but the, the problem with it in this context is that it's, it's misleading because um, NATO countries actually have very good reasons to suspect Russia. I mean, the United States has, has, has a long imperial history in, in South America and it has, you know, it has territories um, in the Pacific and it, it obviously has Guantanamo Bay and Cuba um, but the United States also doesn't have designs on Mexico and, and Canada. The United States isn't isn't threatening to invade Mexico if it doesn't, if, you know, if it considers joining some kind of foreign alliance or, or um, economic bloc. You know, whereas Putin sent two hundred thousand troops up to the border of Ukraine and and said, you know, you're you're now going to do what I say. And so he was he was essentially exercising a veto over what a democratic country could do. Um, so. It, the, the circumstances of this war couldn't be any more different <laughs> from um, the, the circumstances that people are envisioning the United States exercising some kind of um, some kind of veto over what its neighbors can do. So that that's that's just one major difference. And then another major difference is just the fact that, um, you know, NATO was established after World War Two for very good reasons. Um the Cold War was often came close to turning hot. I mean, there there are countries in Europe that have their own legitimate uh, security concerns about Russian expansionism and about what what happened in the intervening years between World War II and and the end of the the Cold War. So it's just it's just a it's a big stretch to claim that. Um, the United States is behaving somehow hypocritically by defending its NATO allies and insisting on uh, democratic sovereignty being respected uh, on the continent. I want to say that um, although Mexico isn't part of Mercosur, um, Mexico is an, uh, has observer status in, in the Mercosur, the South American um, trade alliance. And um, there have been rumblings on and off over the years about Mexico joining Mercosur. And that's, I mean, that is not a military alliance, but nevertheless, that hasn't, as far as I know, um, provoked any anxiety on the part of the United States, uh, nor should it. Yeah, well, it certainly hasn't provoked uh, 200,000 troops uh, on the border threatening to uh, invade. so yeah, so when we, you mentioned that this is one of the common complaints or arguments on on the left, um, and 
just to steer it away perhaps a little bit from the war itself, uh, you've been a very keen observer of some of the the reactions among both right and left. Uh, you recently wrote a Haaretz article about Tucker Carlson uh, and his uh, seeming infatuation with, with Putinism and disregard for for Ukraine. So what what do the left, not all of the left and not all of the right, but uh, these aspects which do make excuses and seem not to care too much about uh, the suffering of Ukrainians, uh, what do they get so wrong about Putin and the invasion and why? And uh, do you think do you think there's something to the idea that both isolationist uh, right wing right wingers and anti imperialist left wingers uh, are they are they singing from the same hymn sheet here? Are they forming a, a kind of unholy alliance on this, or do they have different uh, arguments, different points, different issues with how? Uh, the invasion has been portrayed and how it's going? Well, um, there are always going to be differences between the sort of populist uh, isolationist right and the anti-imperialist left. The, the, but the overlap is always troubling to me. I mean, these days, you'll see Glenn Greenwald on Tucker Carlson pretty much constantly. I mean, he's, he, and, and they're always talking about peripheral issues. So they're always talking about, you know, the fact that in, in the U.S. media, it's, uh, according to them, very difficult to um, criticize Zelensky or it's very, very difficult to express misgivings about American support for the war in Ukraine. And they'll they'll tell you that, that this is a form of censorship. And, you know, we, we're now wrapped up with war fever and, you know, they they always bring up issues like that because it's very difficult for them to talk about the core issue, which is the fact that a democratic country was invaded by uh, an imperialist dictator. And it, it doesn't fit very neatly into their respective worldviews. I mean, you have a, a guy like Glenn Greenwald, who, when uh, Putin invaded Crimea, immediately started writing articles about Iraq. And <laughs> Noam Chomsky immediately started writing articles about Guantanamo and, and Iraq. Um, so when, when horrible things happen around the world uh, that can't be attributed to the United States or its allies, um, there is a contingent on the left that automatically has to find a way in which the United States is either somehow responsible for the current crisis or in some way um, comparably guilty, you know, <laughs> in some way. It has the, the Western countries have, have committed similar crimes or, or worse crimes. Um, and that, that this is just I'm not sure exactly what accounts for this really deep seated masochistic tendency um, on some some factions of the left. And you're starting to see and you've actually been seeing for some time a similar phenomenon on the right. I mean, you you have people like Pat Buchanan, who really prefigured Trump in many ways. And he writes these articles about how, you know, the Ayatollah called the United States the great Satan. And he may have been right about that, you know, and he he's a uh, he's had a big influence on Tucker Carlson, who looks at the United States as it exists today and just sees a country sort of sinking into some kind of dystopian, um, you know, woke hellscape. <laughs> and he's. He's just these are these are people who see a guy like Putin as somebody who's just a more conventional, um, orthodox um, right winger. And they 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 it's not that I'm not saying that 
Tucker Carlson really sympathizes with Putinism per se, but he, he does sympathize with this sort of generalized hostility toward the liberal democratic international order, which has existed for many decades and which has um, provided security and, and economic prosperity for millions of people around the world, billions of people around the world. Um, so it's what what actually feeds this uh, this strange tendency on on the left and the right is it's hard to understand. You know, it's certainly hard for me to understand. But it, the fact that when something like this happens, you have these these factions reliably banging on about the crimes of the United States and how Zelensky is actually the dictator, which is something Tucker Carlson has said in his uh, nightly monologues. Um, then you have something very strange and rotten at the core of these ideologies. I mean, they seem to be more motivated by hostility toward the West than by anything positive, by any actual ideas of their own. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a strange strange world we're living in. Yes, um, it's quite it's quite important to note that it's not it's not particularly new. It's just a bit more visible and visceral these days uh but you know pat began in his uh hatred or hatred for america as he sees it uh goes back a long way uh, as does um left-wing um anti-imperialism uh but uh those those uh that's that's all been ably documented so we shan't get into that here um i just want to put another one of those devil's advocate arguments to you you say that uh, Russia has invaded a, de- a, de- a democratic country, but isn't Ukraine, uh, you know, very corrupt? Uh, didn't Zelensky ban left-wing parties? Um, isn't he uh, isn't he a rich uh, a rich billionaire or millionaire himself? Uh, you know, isn't you know what you know? Aren't they just as bad as each other? Um, yeah, this is uh, this is an argument that comes up frequently. So, Ukraine is a democracy. Um, Zelensky was elected with 73% of the vote. Um, it's a flawed democracy. It's deeply corrupt. There's no question. Um, some of Zelensky's wartime moves deserve criticism. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with people pointing out that uh, he has been hostile toward other political parties. He has been, um, he has been you know, sort of illiberal um, after the invasion. And, and you know, he declared... He declared martial law in Ukraine, and, and this, these, these are the sorts of things that happen in wartime. Um, to put him on all fours with Putin is just a screaming absurdity. I mean, the, the, he, he, was, he was moving Ukraine toward a, a much more, or in a much more liberal democratic direction. And there's just no question that the, the country was, especially compared to um, where it was under Yanukovych and, and under other you know, recent regimes, moving away from the Putinist model. You know, it, it's 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 a flawed democracy, but it's a democracy nonetheless, whereas Putinism has, has just absolutely rotted Russia from the inside out. And it's only becoming more authoritarian and terrifying um, amid the, the war in Ukraine. So, and it, this is, you know, Zelensky is operating in a completely desperate environment, uh, trying to defend his country from, from Russian tanks, whereas Putin is the one sending those tanks across the border. I mean, Moscow was at no risk of, of being occupied by Ukrainian forces, you know. And so I think sometimes when people sit back and, and criticize Zelensky for um, certain illiberal moves that he's made, they should consider the circumstance in which he finds himself. I mean, 
this is uh, countries countries do behave illiberally during war i mean the united states had uh, has had conscription and it's uh, this is this is just a fact of life you know but uh, that's but... I, I don't and i don't have a problem pointing that out like it's it's fine if Glenn greenwald wants to talk about that but it's just isn't it interesting how this is where the emphasis lies for a guy like tucker carlson you know i mean scarcely a word of of criticism for the war itself of course he always says it's a it's a horrible tragedy and i'm disgusted by it you know and he he he'll sort of make the right noises just as a you know as a disclaimer but the focus is always on you know what he what he describes as a state department puppet state in ukraine and what he describes as a dictatorship and you know so it's it's worth it's worth looking at where the emphasis lies and you know looking past the disclaimers Ah, but what about the Azov battalion, uh, neo Nazis, incorporated into into the Ukrainian army officially? It's the only country in the world that's uh, ever, well, that has done that. Um, what about you know? Isn't that why uh, Russian forces have been concentrating so hard on Mariupol? Because that's where the Azov battalion is uh, concentrated uh, at the moment. Is 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 there maybe something to Putin's claim to be denazifying? Ukraine. Yeah, and the for one thing, I think the decision to sort of incorporate the Azov uh, battalion into the Ukrainian armed forces was probably a practical decision made, so you don't have some sort of like uh, sectarian war taking place within the war. I mean, you can sort of imagine what would have happened if if Zelensky would have said, "Okay, well, I mean, the, all of these guys with guns are banished, and you know, we we're not going to let them fight for Ukraine." I mean, it would have been a catastrophe. So. That's the first thing to consider. And the second thing to consider is the fact that uh, every military on Earth probably has far right elements in it. You know, every every military on Earth has people with unsavory views in it. I mean, the question is, what what sort of force are we dealing with uh, on the whole? And uh, I would say in Ukraine, um, it's it's just a lot of normal people fighting to defend their country from uh, occupation. So, yeah, it's 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 true that there are um, far right elements in in the Ukrainian armed forces, just as it was true that there were far right elements um, in the Euromaidan movement. There, there are fascists in Ukraine. They exist. But the vast, vast, vast majority of the people protesting um, in Maidan and the people fighting in the Ukrainian armed, armed forces now are um, just normal people. <laughs> they, you know, with, with, I mean, with actually democratic aspirations that we should respect. So this is yet again, I mean, you, you look at certain people on the anti-imperialist left, you know, people like um, Max Blumenthal, uh, who runs a site called The Gray Zone. I mean, he's constantly talking about the Azov Battalion, and he's talking about how uh, the, the theater bombing was potentially a false flag operation, you know, conducted by uh, the Ukrainians themselves. And He's he's just he's just scraping around constantly for a counter narrative. He has to find a narrative outside of the one that's so screamingly obvious to everybody else, which is yeah. that which is that uh, Ukraine has been invaded because Putin doesn't want the democracy next door. That's that's the story, you know, you know. So yes, um, you know, on that front, I think. Uh, you know, you mentioned that Tucker Tucker Carlson always uh, gives his little disclaimer about how terrible the invasion is and how sorry he is and and all of that. Um, it strikes me maybe that the 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 left leftist version of that is um, is you know okay yes we feel very bad for the working people of 
Ukraine. Uh, you know, it's all you know, and you know, all the workers of the world should unite and be in solidarity with each other, which means we have to de-escalate this war, which means we have to uh, come to some sort of peaceful arrangement. Um, and it strikes me, and it's interesting that that very often, well, actually not very often, all the time, ignores, uh, you know, the actual Ukrainian people who they claim to be so concerned about, who, you know, want to fight, who who are saying, yes, give us, give us more weapons, give us... Give us everything you've got, basically. Um, in fact, they probably, as many of them, want us to go even further um, and actually get more directly involved, which uh, is probably not feasible. Uh, but certainly, they don't want to just give up and call it a day uh, and say, "Yes, okay, fine, you can have half of our territory." Um, you know, the the anti-imperialist left uh, kind of ignores the the genuine feeling among lots of ordinary Ukrainian people who are just fighting for their country and, and for for their right to have a democracy. Um, it also strikes me as slightly uh, ironic. Um, you saw something similar in... I'm going to do a Greenwald here and, and talk about Iraq. You saw something similar in Iraq when the trade unionists in the British Labour Party were the ones who backed Tony Blair. Um because even though they opposed the Iraq war, they didn't want, uh, you know, to withdraw from Iraq. They didn't want British people, uh, soldiers to withdraw from Iraq because they realised that their fellows in Iraq were, uh, you know, their fellow trade unionists and socialists in Iraq uh, needed, uh, the, you know, that help, that they wouldn't uh, fare very well under a Ba'athist regime uh, or any other uh, regime that was on offer. Um so there are there are some very good and noble uh, people who who we may asso- traditionally associate with the anti-imperialist left who uh, who do actually put principle um, first rather than being totally beholden uh, d- dogmatically beholden to to their priors, if you like. Uh, one of those people in one of the people who have been making this case quite uh, recently in Ukraine is. And again, I also apologise for butchering names here, but Taras uh, Bilu, who's a Ukrainian socialist who's currently fighting um, in the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, you know, he, he that's what he says about much of the Western left, that, yeah, OK, you say you care for the Ukrainian people. Well, give us arms. That, that's what uh, actually is, that's what caring is about. If you want to help Ukraine, then you should support the provision of military aid because that's the only thing that's going to help us, even if we don't like Zelensky, uh, even if we think Zelensky's a neoliberal. We realise that this is actually a democracy, albeit an imperfect one, worth fighting for and that you should help us. Uh, and this seems to fall on some very, very deaf ears. Um, yeah, he just wrote a piece in Dissent and I think he... He's, it was his first article is sort of the letter to the Western left. Was that also in dissent, Daniel, or was that somewhere else? No, that was uh, that was an open democracy. But I think he said on Twitter that he actually uh, pitched it to Jacobin first. But Jacobin yeah. only wanted sure. a kind of on the ground report. They didn't want something so inflammatory or accus- accusatory. Yeah, it would have been to Jacobin's credit had they published it. Um yeah, his his stuff has been pretty compelling lately, and I I you know I'm always going to disagree with some of the flat comparisons that he made. 
for example, he said, you know, the United States and the United States had to suffer a humiliating defeat in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, and Putin's going to have to experience the same thing. And I just think comparing the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the invasion of Ukraine is sort of beyond the pale. But I understand where he's coming from. And I, I really do. And I really do think that more left wingers like him, who really are committed to the principles of democracy that um, that the left should embrace are coming out of the woodwork now. I mean, I just I, I think I think the war in Ukraine could turn out to be a sort of hinge moment for the left, because even even left wingers who sort of take a Greenwald light line, you know, um, people who aren't just, you know, members of the Stop the War Coalition or or like Chomskyites to the core, just people who sort of have a general anti-war pacifist background and, and tendency. I think they're seeing this as a very, very hard war to sort of sit out. You know, it's, it's something very difficult to be neutral about, um, which is why you'll see them say, you know, we just think diplomacy needs to take a hand here. Like what we really need now is diplomacy. And you just get these sort of boring statements from many people on the left that that don't actually they don't actually call for any sort of action. I mean, diplomacy is non-existent. I mean, how many times is, does Emmanuel Macron have to call Putin? Like, <laughs> How many visits does Putin need from from foreign heads of state? That's accomplishing nothing. I mean, what has to happen now is Ukraine, Ukraine has to win the war. And it's I think I think I really do think that some people on the left will recognize that. I, I think the. The gentleman you cited, who's on the ground right now, he's this Ukraine, he's the socialist who's, who's taken up arms against an invading army. I mean, it really does kind of have echoes of the Spanish Civil War, doesn't it? I, I, I think he'll inspire others. I really do. Um, Matt, I'd like to just uh, shift back, if we can, from commentary on the war or reactions to the war from people on the anti-imperialist left to back to the kind of the war itself. Um and I wonder if you could take us through the progress of the war. Um, the war has really um, dis- more or less disappeared from the news, um, from the trending topics on Twitter, um, from the kind of Radio 4 coverage. Uh, obviously, you can con- continue reading coverage about uh, uh, about the war, but it ceased to be front page news. And therefore, I think a lot of people have lost a sense of what the current state of play is, what's actually happening, um, how the the prospects look for Russia versus Ukraine on the ground. And um, Uh, could you talk us through that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I I think I would probably dispute the idea that it's fallen out of the headlines. I mean, it's it's pretty you, you pretty much can't pull up the New York Times website without like blaring Ukraine coverage immediately, which is a good thing. And I, I think it's necessary. There was it was displaced by um, Roe v. Wade uh, for a couple of news cycles. And I, I think that will actually distract a lot of folks on Twitter for the foreseeable future. Somebody right after the uh, draft of the opinion was leaked. Um, somebody just posted on Twitter, I have bad news for Zelensky about his status as the thing, you know, capital T, capital T, uh, which is true. I mean, for, you know, for about a 24 hour news cycle, Ukraine was not top of mind. And that I, I understand that that's journalists, uh, newspapers have to make money. But anyway, so I do think I do think it's going to continue to be a major news story. And it's just it has such a powerful effect on the global economy and uh 
oil prices and global supply chains that it, we're just going to have to confront this for the foreseeable future. And um, with that in mind, I think what we are staring at now is a long, long war in Ukraine. Um, Russia is now trying to take just the East. It has scaled back its ambitions. I, I, it was always a mistake to try to take the entire country. I mean, Ukraine is a vast country, you know, 44 million people. And Kiev is apparently a very difficult city to capture and hold. I think the Russians probably realized that they would have been facing a, a nightmarish insurgency and guerrilla campaign had they just taken over, um, had they tried to take over the entire country. So they're, they're now focusing on the east, but the east is also a part of, uh, part of the country where Russian supply lines can get to their forces much more easily. Um, that's going to provide some relief for forces who are spread very thin. Um, there's some talk of Putin potentially um, reimposing conscription on Victory Day, which is this coming Monday, I believe. Not sure when this podcast is going to come out, but um, that remains to be seen. And I've, I've read a lot of analysis on the other side that that would be a disaster for Putin because he would have to admit the war wasn't going well. It would implicate a lot more Russians in the fighting. It would, you know, it would remind mothers and fathers that their kids can now just be called up and sent in. So he might not want to take that step, especially considering the fact that his ambitions have been scaled down a little bit. But, I mean, Ukraine has, has just seen pretty remarkable battlefield success due to this huge influx of weapons from the West and just the resilience of the Ukrainian fighters. I mean, it's it's pretty extraordinary how Russia's military has been exposed as, as far less competent and uh, less functional than, than people thought. Um, so I think what we're probably facing is, is just potentially years of war in, in eastern Ukraine, um, depending on what the Ukrainian government wants to do. I mean, I, I don't whatever future settlement is in the works conceivably would would have to would probably require Ukraine to give up chunks of its territory. And I just don't I just don't know how palatable that could possibly be to them, especially when it seems like they're winning, when it feels like they're winning. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that was the major surprise apart from the invasion itself was uh just how uh how fragile the russian army seems uh to be and how strong the ukrainians were you know i think there was a general expectation that if russia did invade then you know it would be over in a matter of days um and i think whatever you can say about zelensky and Whatever criticisms you have of, of Ukraine as a, as a country or as a democracy, uh, you can't really deny the fact that they've shown incredible uh, bravery and resourcefulness in being able to resist, uh, you know, the the might of Russia. Um, I do wonder, uh, what, you, what do you make of the, the view that this has kind of shown that Putin has lost his edge a bit? You know, he's been isolated during COVID. He's... Uh, he used to be quite a, or seemed to be uh, quite a smart actor when when it came to getting what he wants. You know, he waged uh, a very long campaign to stir up discontent and division in the West. Uh, you know, with uh, misinformation and, and trolls and all the rest of it uh, to interfere in elections. You know, he seemed to do, be doing pretty well uh, until until now. Uh, it seems to have united the West a bit more. Uh, than it has been for quite some time, even again, if not perfectly so. Uh, so has has I suppose that's a two-part question. Has Putin uh, 
gone off the deep end slightly, lost his lost his edge. And you know, what have the effects of this war uh, been on the West? Uh, do you think this uh, unity, uh, again, not a perfect unity, but quite an uh, quite a uh, an impressive uh, development nonetheless? Uh, do you think that will last? Uh, do you think it's just a temporary? blip in the seeming disintegration of the of the west um yeah i i can't i mean i certainly can't comment on putin's mental state i mean I've, i have read a lot of terrifying commentary about how he's been very isolated um during the covid19 pandemic and how this isn't this isn't vintage putin you know <laughs> he, he did always seem as aggressive <laughs> as aggressive as he was he did always seem pretty measured. I mean, you know, Crimea was a, sort of an easy play for him in many ways, had overwhelming support from the Russian people. And it was, you know, it was a Russian speaking part of the country and it was, it was a limited engagement. I think it probably went even better than he ever imagined it could. And that's partially because the West didn't, didn't stand up like it should have. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I really don't know if this is like a different Putin. You'd have to ask a, a, a Putin expert that question. Um, but will the sort of newfound solidarity and um, unity in the West last? I'm hoping it will. And I, I think there's some pretty good indications that it will. I mean, seeing Germany essentially double its defense budget, um, seeing, you know, NATO membership expand right before our eyes you know i mean it's just, there's the, the concern for potential nato members now is that they might not be able to get into the alliance quickly enough i mean the that's what uh, i believe i believe finland expressed that concern like will we be able to um, join before putin can you know launch some kind of attack on our country i mean that that's that's a pretty extraordinary shift and it's just more evidence that the putin strategy has completely backfired um, and then just the, the sanctions regime, which is unprecedented. I mean, this is really a, an unprecedented um, period of economic warfare. I just don't think we've ever we've ever seen such effective um, economic attacks before. I mean, because they really they really have put Russia in a horrendous economic position and isolated Russia like never before. And you know, Europe just agreed to um, impose an embargo on Russian oil. I mean, that will that will take effect slowly and countries like uh, Hungary and Slovakia will have these carve outs, which will allow them to um, sort of, you know, impose the embargo at their own pace or over the course of a couple of years. But that's still a huge move for Europe. And that's, it's deeply politically risky. Um, you know, when some of the, when some of the fervent support for the Ukrainians dies down, you know, Europe is just going to be left with very high fuel costs and this war will probably extend, um, to the winner, and then, then you're you're going to be facing a lot of backlash, and the, the Le Pens of the world will be able to take advantage of that backlash. But Europe is still willing to take that risk, and they have a remarkable amount of agreement. I mean, you have holdouts like Viktor Orban, you know, who's going ahead with his uh, Russian-backed nuclear plant, and who's who's saying that you know a full embargo of Russian oil would just destroy the Hungarian economy. But he's always been Putin's a uh, Putin sympathizer. You know, these yeah, other countries. I was just thinking that he's uh, rolled back somewhat on, uh, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, on his earlier uh, seeming alignment uh, against Russia uh, when the invasion began. Uh, ho I, hopefully, we just don't uh, listen to the Le Pens and the Orbans and Gerhard Schroeder, <laughs> for that matter. Oh my God! 
<laughs> yeah, I, I just think I just think that um, Orban was under so much pressure from the EU to sign on to the sanctions package because you, you can't have a dissenting vote in the EU. And, and this is something that the, the rest of the bloc wanted so badly. And I just think it's a fight that Orban wasn't willing to pick. But you know he's been dragged into it. Yeah, you know, I, do, I do worry slightly that, I mean, I think most of this should have been done quite long ago. It should, you know, you know after Crimea, if not before. Um, but it's, it's welcome that uh, finally the West seems to be really doing something about Putin. Um, but I do feel like it's slightly, slightly late. You know, he's clearly been a menace for about a decade or so now, at least. Um, uh, and it does feel a bit too, too little, too late, or not? Well, not too little, perhaps, but a bit too late. Um, um, yeah, Iona, did you have a question? Oh yeah, I was just going to say that Gary Kasparov has been warning about Putin's ambitions for a decade. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's and he's been extremely hawkish. Like he was going for a no-fly zone pretty early on, pretty much immediately. And I, I understand the desire to impose a no-fly zone, and I know that plenty of people in Ukraine were calling for that. But I, I do think. NATO and NATO countries and the United States in particular made the right decision by by holding off because I mean look at the way the war is going I mean there's a reason why Lloyd Austin you know a, a week or so ago said that it, our ultimate goal is to degrade Russia's capacity to launch wars like this um, people made a huge deal out of that comment as if it was just some complete revelation you know and all the all the people who were constantly on the lookout for regime change policies were screaming about how the United States is yet again seeking regime change or, you know, and that, I just think that was so overblown. I mean, of course, of course, your ultimate goal when you're funneling weapons into a war is to degrade the capacities of the other side. I mean, it just see, it seemed like such a, it was just such a, a huge explosion of hand-wringing over what struck me as something close to nothing. But I mean, he, the reason Austin is saying stuff like that is the fact that the United States thinks, I mean, we, we think that this war could be won. And that's why Biden has ramped up assistance to Ukraine so dramatically. I mean, we're, we're providing Ukraine with a staggering amount of support now. Um, logistical support, military support. I mean, I think American uh, officials should stop boasting about killing Russian, uh, Russian generals. I think yeah. that's an idiotic thing to do. But you know, and I see now that we're also boasting about having a role in the sinking of, of Russia's destroyer. Well, yeah, it's just everybody knows. Everybody knows that the United States is fighting on Ukraine's side. <laughs> it's just, but it's I can't think of anything more inflammatory than a U.S. intelligence official saying like, "Oh yeah, we're just picking off their generals one by one." You know, I mean, this just seems like a really reckless thing to be doing. But anyway, to get to get back to the main point. Um, yeah, I, I think that we see victory like we can we we can envision it now. And um, that's that's why the the flow of money and weapons and logistical support is not going to stop. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask that question, but you've already pretty much answered it. Uh, you know, to what extent should the West be involved? Um, and it sounds and I think I think it's the correct answer is that anything short of boots on the ground or no fly zones. Um you know everything and anything uh, apart from apart from that is what the West should be doing, so yeah, long as I the mean, Ukrainians uh, want it, of course. Absolutely, yeah, I think so. And you know, it's 
that, that does set us up for a long and and horrifying war. But I, it, it is tough to see a, an alternative at this point. I mean, it really is. Because you, I, I um, do you think that uh, you know you mentioned that you know energy costs? I mean, they're already skyrocketing, and they're probably going to get much much worse in Europe. Um, do you think that do you think that people in Europe will accept that as the price of helping Ukraine? I don't know. I mean, I you know, France has parliamentary elections coming up, and the concern is that while Macron won convincingly, uh, Le Pen gained a lot of support, and she was much closer to winning this time than she was in 2017. And yeah, she'll be able to demagogue this to death. I mean, she'll be able to say that, you know, we're, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot by imposing these sanctions and the sanctions should be lifted or reduced. And the more pain, the more economic pain that European publics feel, the more inclined they'll be to support um, politicians like Le Pen and, and Orban. And that, that, that is a concern. I mean, I, I think the amount of solidarity that we've seen has been really inspiring. And I think it probably represents a pivotal moment for Europe and for the Western world more generally, the democratic world, I should say. Mm. Yes, it, um, does, it does feel like one of those generational moments, uh, you know, one of those hinge moments, not just for the left or the West, but just in general. Um, yeah, yeah, I did, I, I did, I uh, I did also want to ask about um, the potential well, well, you mentioned uh, Victory Day uh, earlier, um, the celebration of of Russia, you know, uh, about the victory over Nazi Germany in nineteen. Um, on on ninth of May, let's um, May 9th, just 9th May. date, date <laughs> for context. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, uh, which is on uh, only a couple of days um, from now when we're recording this podcast. So, any predictions uh, come uh, come with a should come with a hefty dose of caution. Um, but what do you make of uh, some of the um, opinions that are floating around that Russia is going to massively escalate this war, either with conscription or potentially even with tactical nuclear strikes? Uh, do you think that's likely? Um, and I do slightly worry about it because we most most people didn't think that Putin would do anything so ridiculous as to invade, try and invade the entirety of Ukraine. Um, so perhaps we shouldn't be discounting um, the use of, of nuclear weapons in this war. Well, we should never discount it. I, I think it is very unlikely that he'll use nuclear weapons. I mean, this is um, this is actually something that CBS polled Americans on recently. Like, what are the conditions under which you would you would support direct American military engagement in in Ukraine? And one of them was the use of nuclear weapons. I think something like the high 60s percentage of respondents said they would support it or an an attack, a direct attack on a NATO country. Um, I think Putin knows that if he uses nuclear weapons, it will completely change the dynamic and there will be heavy pressure for NATO countries to just get involved directly with airstrikes or what have you. So I don't I don't think he will see much benefit from using them. Um, on the question of whether he'll escalate dramatically on Victory Day or sometime around then, I really don't know. I sort of view it as unlikely. I mean, Russia has, I, I, there are some weird indicators that something like that might be coming just because Russia's sort of been more reserved in some ways than, than people expected it to be. And I know that might sound insane, you know, when you survey the carnage that has been wrought in places like Bucha and, and elsewhere, but it's they, you know, they haven't they haven't been as like targeting 
convoys of, of arms deliveries as aggressively as you might expect or taking out railroads and, and roads as aggressively as you might expect. And it just it just does almost make you wonder if if Russia has eased into this conflict and is considering, you know, whether and when to when to escalate. But I mean, I just I just really don't care to speculate on whether or not you know that's going to happen this Monday or whether it's not or what's, whether it's going to happen in several months. I mean, I think they, they'll probably just keep slugging it out in eastern Ukraine. I mean, maybe maybe they'll escalate, but I don't think it'll be some explosive escalation. I, I think the use of nuclear weapons and I think conscription are both pretty unlikely at this point. But, you know. So what, what do you think is going to happen on uh, July 11th uh, of this year in Ukraine? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I think uh, there, there, there will be some explosions. <laughs> That's the best I can do. Um, do you think that the, um, I mean, it seems to me that as far as nuclear weapons are concerned, um, one reason why it's unlikely that Russia would use nuclear weapons is for the same reason as why um, India and Pakistan have not fired nuclear weapons at each other. Because it's you can't fire a nuclear weapon at a country that... Um, that borders on your country without having serious impact on your own country. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would certainly that would certainly weigh on any decision to use tactical nuclear weapons. And it, you know, I think it, it would be less of a concern with a tactical nuclear weapons because the, their yields can be much smaller and sort of dialed back. But I just think that you know, it's also not great for Russia's narrative. I mean, Russia's narrative is in shambles anyway. I mean, the idea of denazifying Ukraine is. Has always been just a grotesque parody of a rationale for a war, but um, at the same time, you know, it, it, it does it does really start to look absurd. I mean, to, you would assume two Russians, if you start just nuking the country that you're uh, presumably saving. I mean, it's just there there has to be a limit to the uh, level of force that Russia can can use against people it's ostensibly liberating. You know, so I just I just don't think any there's no strategic calculus that makes tactical nukes seem reasonable to me. I mean, I, I just can't I can't imagine that. Um, I do want to move on to talking um, more about the impacts of this war on um, the situation in Europe and also on um, energy use in Europe. Um, but first, I, I took a glance at the Twitter comment. I solicited questions from people on Twitter and someone asked a question which um, I've received in a lot of context recently, also with regard to Hindu nationalism, and which the question kind of angers and sickens me in the way that it's framed. Um, and I'm, I would welcome your sort of... Um, your perhaps more measured response to it, which is, uh, the person asks, why is there such pro-Ukraine solidarity between the elites on both the left and right? Um, and then there's some abbreviation, TYVM, which I, I, I have no idea what that means. Um, Thank you very much, maybe. Oh, maybe, yes. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. This is, and... I'm it's a question that I hear also about Hindu nationalism, that it's the elites who are against Hindu nationalism, that the people, the people like a kind of fascist authoritarian dictatorship. They like to be governed by a strong man. It's the overeducated, cynical, English speaking, in the Indian case, 
elites who oppose it and that therefore you know fascism is the kind of more genuine thing the more like the more sort of natural thing and um we degenerate intellectuals shouldn't be opposing it maybe i'm reading too much into his question because i've heard so many parallel versions of that question in regards to india but um how would you interpret that question about the elites and and what would you say in response um i mean i think the reason why you see elites which i mean presumably that refers to you know like liberal leaders of democratic countries i mean I'm not, I'm not exactly sure about the, the sort of grammar of the question, but you know, it, it's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure actually from the bottom up to take action against Ukraine. I mean, I just mentioned this polling data in the United States, which suggests that the vast majority of voters think we should be involved in Ukraine and think we should do it for the stated purposes to defend a democracy from an aggressive neighbor. So, I mean, the, the elites are, reflecting the popular will to that extent. But at the same time, I mean, what Daniel and I were just discussing, the the sort of pull of populism and and nationalism and retrenchment will probably become stronger as the war drags on. Because, you know, the, the initial shock of the invasion, the horror, you know, these images of people hugging their daughters and wives for the last time and, and you know, heading off to battle will eventually subside as it always does. I mean, wars, just like any atrocity, um, they, they tend to fall out of the headlines given enough time. And when people are suffering uh, so much economic pain, I think you can pretty much expect that to happen and expect them to start sympathizing with more populist leaders. So I just think that's that's going to be the job of you know the Biden administration and, and Macron and and. Um, everyone else who's trying to process, like help the Ukrainians prosecute this war and, and keep publics um, engaged and supportive will be to to keep framing the stakes and, and keep reminding people that, you know, this is this is painful for a reason. I know that people like Tucker Carlson have boundless contempt for, you know, Jen Psaki telling the Americans that they're going to have to deal with some pain at the pump or they're going to have to deal with some higher prices for a while to defend our values. I know that that's just a, it's, it's so easy to mock if you are Tucker Carlson, but you know, it, that it is true. I mean, this is, this is what we're facing now is just a, a protracted war that, that needs, that will cause, I mean, it will cause um, a lot of economic pain and it, it's just, you have to figure out a way to make that case to your people over and over again. Um, so that, that it's going to be it's going to be a challenge and it's going to be really hard for Biden going um, going toward the midterms this year um, because he's, you know, people people don't they really don't uh, reward the party in power when there are economic problems. I mean, I think the Democrats are probably facing a, a horrendous November, uh, but that remains to be seen. Um, since you mentioned the pain at the pump for Americans, um, I um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the repercussions for uh, energy supply within Europe in particular, and whether you think this will this may um, change or whether this has been changing some of the attitudes towards, for example, nuclear power. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Germany's uh, shutdown of nuclear power plants. Um, could you say more about that aspect of the effects of this war? Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's certainly going, it should be a giant advertisement for nuclear power, I mean, in my opinion. And Germany is actually continuing to shut down its reactors. I think it's in the process of shutting down reactors now. And Ger- Germany's experiment with um, a dramatic shift to alternative energy was already a pretty, pretty obvious failure um, before the war in Ukraine. But now it's, it's just, it's been exposed as an even, an even more, an even more reckless thing to do. And then, you know, comp- compounding that mistake was um, establishing Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. And the Germans admirably dropped Nord Stream 2 right after Putin invaded, but they're still getting a massive amount of, of gas uh, from from Russia. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does make the case for a sort of more independent Europe um, when it comes to energy. It makes the case for nuclear power, in my opinion. I, I'm afraid that we probably won't see um, the commensurate level of investment in nuclear power. I mean, what which is what should happen, but which is, I, I just, I find the opposition to nuclear power befuddling. I mean, it's, it's remarkable that we have this tool and we refuse to use it. Um, instead relying on alternative sources of energy that have a pretty clear ceiling in terms of how much they can be scaled. But the other, um, the other element of this is uh, the question of getting gas prices down and oil prices down. And on, on that front, it's just frustrating because the United States could dramatically uh, increase its production capacity, but a lot of oil companies just say they don't want to do that because they they don't want to build the infrastructure necessary to um, start you know cranking out more oil at a time when the general political winds and economic winds are against their industry. I mean, they know that the Biden administration wants them to pump now, but in two years that won't that might not be the case. Um, so that's the argument that they're making. They're not going to, and they're also enjoying windfall profits. You know, I mean, check Exxon Mobil's uh, stock price right now, and um, the same applies to OPEC countries. You know, Saudi Arabia doesn't want to dramatically ramp up oil production because it's a bonanza for Saudi Arabia when oil prices are obscenely high. Um, so you, you, we actually do have these alternatives that could, that could, you know, conceivably produce more oil and, and provide alternatives to Russian oil, but they ref- we, we refuse to do it. Um, a quick aside, I, I actually don't really know what's going on behind the scenes with Saudi Arabia in particular. I mean, the United States has had this, this rotten relationship with Saudi Arabia for so long, and uh, we've tolerated these grotesque human rights abuses, I mean, from Khashoggi to just the way um, secular bloggers are treated in the country. And it's kind of remarkable that when when we really need Saudi Arabia to maybe pump a bit more oil, they just they drag their feet and refuse to do it. So what what are we getting out of this? I mean, we've sold our souls for nothing, apparently. (laughs) That's just something I've been something I've been wondering about lately. I mean, honestly, if there's anyone listening who understands the dynamics of the American relationship with Saudi Arabia, just explain this to me. Are we pressuring them really heavily right now to to ramp up production capacity a bit or are we just not going to bother? I mean, it's it seems it seems strange to me. But yeah, anyway, I think that's uh, that's a good aside. I mean, it's something I've wondered about for a long time. Um, uh, you know, I think the alliance with Saudi Arabia is just the most stupid um, foreign policy decision uh, that our elites ever made, if you like. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's been uh, supporting this you know, their pointless war in Yemen has, has been a bizarre policy. <laughs> um, that was something yeah, that this, Biden... This is a country which, you know, is funding... Um, 
you know indoctrination into jihad as a moral wide this uh, but um yeah that's all <laughs> that's all yeah, uh, this will always be this will always be a mystery to me i mean i i think there, there's a powerful saudi lobby in in washington and i just think the, the relationship is old and deep and then there's this command there's this fear of iran which is just overwhelming <laughs> for so many people in, in washington so uh just to finish off um matt is there anything that you would like to say that you didn't get a chance to say uh any subjects that you would like to broach uh, while, while you have the chance, while you're platformed? Yes. So, um, good answer. Good answer. I, I've, I've written, I've written a fair amount about a, a theory of international relations known as realism. And, uh, two of its most, uh, two of its most popular exponents are, uh, Stephen Walt and, and John Mearsheim. And I, one of my, one of my biggest problems with realism is the fact that it treats states um, with a certain level of power or states that are in a certain position in the international system as interchangeable with one another. I mean, it's just it, when states have, you know, when, when there's a great power like Russia, um, there's a military alliance on its doorstep, it will do certain things. And one of those things is evidently invade Ukraine or at the very least make life very difficult for the Ukrainians. Um, I, I find this position very strange, especially given the fact that there are other great powers, um, countries with much larger economies than Russia, for example, that behave in the exact opposite way. And Germany would be the, the prime example. And I think this is partially due to the fact that they have different historical memories. They have different political cultures. They have all these different internal characteristics um, that, that lead them to behave in different ways. <laughs> and I, I just think it's odd that realists, I mean, you know, one thing that John Mearsheimer thought would happen at the end of the Cold War is that Germany would potentially invade an Eastern uh, European country to create a buffer between itself and Russia. And he even thought that the Russians could check Germany's territorial ambitions. I mean, imagine a world in which Vladimir Putin was checking the, the territorial ambitions of Angela Merkel. I mean, it's inconceivable. And this is because these are completely different countries. So I just think there's this attitude like, well, you need to take Russia's security interests seriously because it's just behaving like any state would in its situation. That's just simply not true. I mean, countries don't constantly seek to exploit any power vacuum or, or, or any, uh, you know, position of power in, in a region. You know, Germany has become a completely Europeanized country and has, has really admirably uh, tried to confront its history and and become the anchor of the European Union, whereas Russia has remained this this chauvinist imperialist state. And, and I think that it, it's it's actually a good time to be talking about this because we're coming up on um, Russia's Victory Day celebration. Well, there's there's a Victory Day celebration and uh, not celebration, but event in Germany as well, and it's not called Victory Day. Obviously, it's called Remembrance Day. And it's it's a day when Germans take the time to remember everybody who's who's died in, in the horrific cataclysms of the 20th century, including World War II. It's a somber affair in Germany. And it, this is a country that has learned historical lessons. And I just so I just this is just my rebuke to the realists. Um, big countries don't always behave like this. Big countries do not always throw their weight around and torture and oppress their neighbors. And if if, if you had a different political culture in Russia, you would have different actions on the world stage. So that is something I've been meaning to say forever. And uh, I'm glad that you gave me an opportunity to do it. <laughs> so thanks. Yeah, um, I'm glad uh, as well, because I, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm no expert on 
international rela- relations as an academic field of study, but uh, I do I have my issues with the realists as well. Uh, they miss out a lot in their analysis, let's just say. Yeah, um, and they're... It's just that their their ideas have also percolated a lot. I mean, you, you do see this. You get this from the anti-imperialist left, too. They make those arguments about how the United States is hypocritical for attacking Russia in this way. I mean, wouldn't the United States behave in the same way if it was in Russia's position? Well, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> it's got a completely yeah. different political culture and history. So mm-hmm. it's just anyway, that's that's my uh, that's my two cents on realism. Oh, well, thank you so much, um, Matt, for joining us. Um and uh, I very much hope for as speedy an end to this war as possible, but an end in which in which um, Ukrainian sovereignty um, and democracy is reestablished. And uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. And thank you, Daniel, too, for joining us. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.